Before we continue with this series on my family and Bible translation, I want to bring a few things to your attention, recommend some things, and share some general Bible translation news. Now, first, on my website, workingfortheword.com, I've added a resource page for people interested in finding out more about translation or who want to grow as a consultant in training, etc. It's still a work in progress, and I'm sure some of you will have recommendations of things that would be helpful to add to it, including things I've mentioned in the past on this podcast and forgot to include. If you do, feel free to email me at workingfortheword at gmail.com. And if you've been following this podcast for a while, you'll know that I'm especially interested in free open access resources. What I'm doing with this page is providing a curated list of things I personally have read and recommend for your professional development, or if you just have a casual interest in Bible translation. Now, obviously, there are many more works on Bible translation out there and many more tools, but I personally don't find all of them helpful or useful. So go ahead and check it out and see if there's anything on there that looks interesting, and I hope it can serve the Bible translation movement. Now, a book I've been enjoying revisiting lately has been one of the modern classics on translation entitled, Is That a Fish in Your Ear? Translating and the Meaning of Everything and I'll link that in the description. Now, if you subscribe to Scribd, like I do, the book is free to read there. And on the Amazon page, it says, Is that a fish in your ear ranges across the whole of human experience, from foreign films to philosophy, to show why translation is at the heart of what we do and who we are. The author of this book is David Bellows, and what I find especially fascinating in this book is the chapter on foreignization. It's something I've thought a lot about in relation to Bible translation, and I recommend that more discussion take place in the Bible translation community regarding foreignization. In my experience, that concept is rather neglected in discussions and training, even though outside of Bible translation, it's been something people have been talking about and writing about for centuries. Let me share a few interesting tidbits from the book. The author writes, How then should the foreignness of the foreign best be represented in the receiving language? Jean d'Alembert, a mathematician and philosopher who was also co-editor of Diderot's Encyclopedia, came up with an ingenious answer in 1763. He writes, the way foreigners speak French is the model for a good translation. The original should speak our language not with the superstitious caution we have for our native tongue, but with a noble freedom that allows features of one language to be borrowed in order to embellish another. Done in this way, a translation may possess all the qualities that make it commendable a natural and easy manner, marked by the genius of the original, and alongside that, the added flavor of a homeland created by its foreign coloring, end quote. Now, obviously, I'm interested in this idea because when we're translating scripture, we're translating a very foreign culture and language, and the tension is always around whether 
we should include some of that foreignness to make people feel like they're reading a book from the ancient Near East, or how much of that foreignness we should make invisible and contextualize to the point that the person feels like they're reading something that was written in their language originally and in their present-day culture. Now, of course, in a lot of ways, that is impossible to do, to make it sound like the Bible was written today in today's culture of the U.S., for example. So, the question in my mind is always, what are the elements, the foreign elements, that we should preserve versus the elements that we should not preserve? Anyway, I'm going to come back to that later in a full podcast episode on an article on this topic that unpacks it really, really well. Anyway, back to the book, Is That a Fish in Your Ear? The author goes on to write that foreign soundingness is therefore only a real option for a translator when working from a language with which the receiving language and its culture have an established relationship. So this is an interesting thing to think about. In English and Hebrew, we already have a long-standing established relationship. There are so many Hebraisms that have entered into our contemporary speech, and we have so many literal translations that are foreign-sounding that we have inherited over the years, specifically how the KJV has influenced us. But then if you're talking about translating for a brand new people group in Papua New Guinea that has never had any kind of contact with the Hebraic mind and culture, well, that's going to be totally different in your approach to foreignization and how you process those decisions. Here's another quote. He says, no less than 40% of all the headwords in any large English dictionary are imports from other languages. A foreignism be it a word, a turn of phrase, or a grammatical structure that is brought into our marvelously and infuriatingly malleable tongue by a translator seeking to retain the authentic sound of the original, has its path already mapped out. Either it will be disregarded as a clumsy, awkward, or incomplete act of translation, or it will be absorbed, reused, integrated, and become not foreign at all. The natural way to represent the foreignness of foreign utterances is to leave them in the original, in whole or in part. This resource is available in all languages and has always been used to some degree in every one of them. It's not easy to represent the foreignness of foreign languages in complete seriousness. It takes wit to do so for comic effect without causing offense, end quote. Now, the author has another interesting chapter on meaning that really is pointing at something akin to relevance theory in a lot of the discussion, even though he doesn't really use that term. It may not have come along uh, before he wrote this book, but he's got this really interesting little anecdote that you may not have heard before. He says, at the start of his revolutionary work, Syntactic Structures in 1957, Noam Chomsky cooked up a nonsense sentence in order to explain what he saw as the fundamental difference between a meaningful sentence and a grammatical one. So here's his sentence. Colorless green ideas sleep furiously. This was proposed as a fully grammatical sentence that had no possible meaning at all. Within a few months, 
witty students devised ways of proving Chomsky wrong. And at Stanford, they were soon running competitions for texts in which colorless green ideas sleep furiously would be not just a grammatical sentence, but a meaningful expression as well. Here's one of the prize-winning entries. It can only be the thought of verdure to come, which prompts us in the autumn to buy these dormant white lumps of vegetable matter covered by a brown papery skin, and lovingly to plant them and care for them. It is a marvel to me that under this cover they are laboring unseen at such a rate within to give us the sudden awesome beauty of spring flowering bulbs. While winter reigns, the earth reposes, but these colorless green ideas sleep furiously. End quote. Now that is exactly the kind of stuff that nerdy linguists love to do. <laughs> I can imagine the same kind of thing happening at CanIL or UND or DIU. There's a lot of odd people like myself that go into linguistics. A lot of single people end up at these programs, and I like to tell them that, well, if they're dreaming of, of meeting the love of their life at one of these programs, the odds are good, but the goods are odd. Anyway, another thing I wanted to bring to your attention is the recent podcast series called The Textual Confidence Collective. I asked my friend Mark Ward to record a brief blurb about it, so let's listen to him real quick. I'm Mark Ward, a friend of Andrew's, and I'm honored to come on one of my own favorite podcasts for just a few seconds to invite you to listen to a short podcast series from the Textual Confidence Collective. One thing I love about Andrew is his confidence that textual criticism is something far, far more Christians can and should learn. I and my friends, Dr. Elijah Hickson of the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, Peter Montoro, a pastor and PhD candidate in textual criticism, and Tim Berg, all-around expert on the history of the King James, we all believe the same thing. In a seven-part series, we arrange major views on the text of the New Testament into the categories of textual skepticism, textual absolutism, and textual confidence. We explore the history of New Testament textual criticism, and we make special application to the King James-only debate. I myself learned a lot from my friends in this series. I'm confident you will too. For more information and for both audio and video of our series, check out textualconfidence.com. That's textualconfidence.com. Also, since I did a recent episode with Alan Pierce on oral Bible translation, for those of you who are interested in going deeper into oral Bible translation, Chris Toller has written a master's thesis on the internalization process and its value for oral Bible translation. You can find that for free online, and I'll link it in the description. It's really comprehensive at around 150 pages, and it's titled, Internalization, a key ingredient in achieving naturalness in an oral translation. Chris is a graduate of DIU and works here in Mexico with the Central Pamid language, so go ahead and check that out. Now, for those of you who speak Spanish or work in Spanish-speaking contexts, I just recently published the 10th video in my series on textual criticism of the Old Testament. You can find the first episode on YouTube if you search for Un curso sobre la crítica textual del Antiguo Testamento Introducción. I'll also link to the playlist in the description. 
This has been a lot of work. Each video takes a month or two to make. It's a labor of love. And what's great is they're narrated by a native speaker from the Dominican Republic, my friend Fausto Liriano, who works with United Bible Societies. The videos are carefully crafted, dense with content, full of examples and beautiful imagery of manuscripts in full color and in 4K. And they're designed mainly with translators in mind and are easy to follow. I recommend that people use them for courses and have students watch each video at least two to three times to fully grasp the content, because we all know that Old Testament textual criticism is not something you grasp overnight. Now, moving on to a more personal note, my wife and I are celebrating the milestone of 100,000 subscribers to our Aleph with Beth Hebrew training channel on YouTube. And I hope this is a testimony to God's faithfulness and to the effectiveness of the Dorian principle that if you freely give gospel-oriented biblical content, it has a much larger impact than if you required payment for teaching these biblical languages or whatever else. And I can say once again that God has provided for us through generous donors from around the world exceedingly and above what we could ask or think. We never monetize our videos in any way, no ads or sponsors. So there's zero friction or obstacles in the way of people going deeper into God's word. I merely say all of that to prove that it's possible to provide God's people everywhere with premium, quality, biblical content and education without begging, going hungry, or putting up paywalls. It doesn't have to be complicated to let go of control over things you create. And this is not throwaway content that we're producing. Each of our videos costs us dearly in time, about 40 hours of work each, research, equipment, a steep technical learning curve, sacrifice of energy, sleep, and other important projects that we could potentially be working on instead. We've faced a lot of challenges, both emotional and circumstantial, throughout this journey, and there have been many discouraging comments online from both believers and unbelievers, vitriolic comments that can ruin your whole day by people who are just simply malicious. But we're well aware that nothing worth doing is ever easy, and good things are always opposed from both within and without. So, if you still haven't checked out freehebrew.online and freegreek.online, definitely do so. See how it can serve you, your church, your small group, your homeschool community, your family, etc. Finally, I wanted to share an interview that I found so fascinating and encouraging, and it's actually an interview done on the Jordan Peterson podcast with a guy from India named Vishal Mangalwadi. And he talks with Jordan Peterson about the history of India and the role the Bible played in shaping it as a country. They explore the influence of missionaries, India's caste system, power, the impact of the British Empire on slavery, widow burning and infanticide, and the revolutionary nature of the distribution of the Bible. Vishal Mangalwadi is a social reformer, political columnist, Indian Christian philosopher, writer, and lecturer. He's the author of 20 books, including The Book That Made Your World, 
How the Bible Created the Soul of Western Civilization, which I'm reading right now and I can highly recommend. So let me play a brief clip of this for you to whet your appetite to go on over and listen to the full podcast episode, which I will link in the description. This started on my quest, a philosophical quest to see. I first went to uh, the Hindu Gita Press Gurukul that sells Hindu scriptures and asked them for a copy of the Vedas, the most ancient sacred Hindu scriptures, which are supposed to be revelation. And I was amazed that uh, the uh, my professors, of course, had been taught teaching us the philosophy of the Vedas, but they never brought a copy of the Vedas into the classroom. And I had never seen a copy of the Vedas. So uh, I went to buy one and I was told that, sorry, the Vedas are not printed. They cannot be translated. I was surprised to learn that actually Sanskrit never had a script uh, because it was oral language with sophisticated uh, grammar, uh, but no script. So the Vedas were not supposed to be written down. Uh, They were to be memorized, and memorizing was not enough. You needed correct enunciation and pronunciation and intonation and when to offer uh, the melted butter into the fire, etc., the rituals. That was the purpose. So Vedas were never written to know the truth. And in fact, the Upanishad, uh, uh, which followed the Vedas, uh, Mundaka Upanishad, for example, which from which our national motto comes, which is Satya Mev Jayate, truth alone triumphs. Uh, the Upanishad says uh, that no amount of study of the Vedas will ever lead you to truth. Because the Vedas are not written to give you knowledge or wisdom of truth. They are magical sounds uh, composed to give you power. So I said, well, it will be very nice to have some power, but right now I'm looking for truth. So I went to uh, the Muslim books because I was in a city called Allahabad, and I was surprised that the Quran was not available neither in my mother tongue, which is India's national language, Hindi, or Urdu, which was the language of my town, uh, which is the national language of uh, um, Pakistan right now. So the Quran was not available. The shopkeepers explained to me that you have to study Arabic to study Quran. So I said, well, it would be very nice to know a foreign language, but at this moment, I'm not interested in studying a language. If the Quran is God's word, why is it not available to me in my language? So it was my older sister who encouraged me to read the Bible. And I said to her that I've already read the Bible. I think these are childish stories. So she said, no, 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 you were a child when you read it. Uh, Now you think you are a philosopher. So read it as a critical philosopher. And as I began rereading the Bible, I found Genesis very exciting because it was answering questions that the university had not answered about who who am I? Later, as I kept reading up to say books like Leviticus, I found the Bible very boring, very boring book. But when I came into the uh, historical books of Kings and Chronicles, then I was really fed up. Uh, here I am an Indian young man. I do not know enough about Indian history. Why am I reading this Jewish book? And as I was ready to close down the Bible once and for all, the uh, something amazing happened. 
which was that Indian history at school level is always telling us how good, great, glorious, wonderful our ancestors and our rulers was. This Jewish book in Kings and Chronicles was telling me how rotten the Jewish kings were. So I realized, of course, this is not court history. Kings didn't pay historians to write about their fathers. So this must be religious history of the Jews, which is critical of the politicians, because in India, the religious leaders are Brahmins, politicians are Kshatriyas. There's always rivalry between them. So I said, this must be a religious book. So just to confirm my opinion of what the Bible is, I began rereading these historical books, and I was amazed that the book is condemning Jewish religious leaders to the point that God hated them. He destroyed his temple. He killed the priests. He sent them into slavery. So I said, okay, then the Bible must be subaltern history written from the point of view of simple uh, Jewish people, men and women and children, who uh, uh, are exploited both by religious and political leaders. But then, as I <laughs> began rereading these books, I realized, no, uh, this book is incredible. It is more anti-Semitic than anything Hitler could have written. It is saying that every Jew was an idolater, adulterer, liar, cheater, deceiver, etc. God hated the people. He destroyed his chosen people, sent them into slavery to Assyria and Babylon. So then I said, well, this must be the point of view of the prophets, because prophets mm -hmm. love to condemn everybody. Uh, that's people would accuse you and me of being that kind of uh, voice. So uh, here, I already know that these are very boring books. And within a period of two months, I'm looking through Samuel Kings and Chronicles for the fifth time to just confirm my point of view that this is the word of prophets. Uh, but then I was amazed that the book is saying most of the prophets were false prophets. The good ones were the losers. They were trying to mm. save their nation. They couldn't save themselves. They were beaten, killed, thrown into cisterns, etc. Now, every so often on MAP, the forum for Bible translation, map.bloomfire.com, you can read some general Bible translation news. And so I wanted to share a few highlights from this. If you want to learn more about translation training and development, you can go to EMDC online and look at the communities page. You'll see an opportunity to join a session on November 17th about best and worst practices in cohort training. Cohort training is becoming more common in the Bible translation movement. Terrell Gonzalez is going to be offering recommendations for mentors and trainers who may be exploring the advantages and disadvantages of cohort training or seeking to improve their skills or avoid pitfalls in group mentoring. Also over on EMDC Online, there's going to be a quality and translation exploratory symposium. The symposium is going to include a mixture of presentations of short concept papers along with time for synthesis and discussion. Over 70 concept papers have been submitted, including titles like Towards a Pick List of Translation Qualities That Can Be Assessed Objectively, Can Naturalness Negate Translation Quality, Who Owns Quality in Bible Translation, 
the value of linguistic checks for translated scripture and more. Also, Mike Gibson is introducing a multilingual assessment tool. So it says here, there's little doubt that patterns of multilingualism, along with other factors in minority communities, have an influence on the use of scripture. In order to help communities understand how this influences them, MAT has been developed by an interagency team with SIL involvement. The purpose of MAT is to help churches, Bible translation agencies, and funding agencies be aware of how multilingualism affects strategic decisions concerning Bible translation and scripture use. It aims to be easy to use and practical, consisting of a limited number of questions, which should be relatively easy to answer. And I will link the tool in the description. Next, Greg Decker shares about the translation consultant Think Tank. At the initiative of SIL and the seed company translation departments, members from 11 Bible translation organizations have been meeting together regularly to explore possible solutions relating to interorganizational translation consultant inventory, management, compensation, and deployment. We've been asking questions like, how many translation consultants are there? What are the issues around retaining translation consultants? How can we build a financially sustainable model of translation consulting? Are we successful at deploying translation consultants to where they are needed most? So why are we asking these questions? Here are some of the challenges we're facing interorganizationally. We don't know the number of translation consultants available worldwide. We don't know what are the projected needs for TCs over the next three to five years and longer within the Bible translation movement. We don't have a quick reference for the TC's skills, location, language proficiency, and similar information, so locating and contacting a consultant for project work is challenging. And we are seeing significant attrition of TC's. Anyway, it goes on to give more information on this, so you can go to MAP and look at Translation News November 2022 to see more information on that and people you can contact. Finally, Wycliffe UK has produced an eight-page report, State of the Bible 2022, which is global in scope, and this has been a record-breaking year for Bible translation. So you can find out all the latest activity and things that are going on and records that have been set there. I'll link it in the description. Anyway, I hope some of that was helpful. I'll catch you guys soon in the next episode about my grandfather in Bible translation. Take care, everyone, and God bless.